through verse 6. Let's read this. It said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. So, when we see here in Ephesians, in these few little three verses here, is Paul kind of takes us from eternity past to eternity future in just a few verses. Paul basically gives us the eternal plan of God in just these few verses. If you look back there with me, it says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to his will. And we know that that involves the future plan and the spiritual blessings and such. But Paul is basically recounting for us the beginning, eternity past to eternity future. So before the fall, what we see here in Ephesians, before the fall, before any disobedience had taken place, before the kingdom pattern, as we've talked about, was established in the garden, before that kingdom pattern would be the kingdom perished, as we talked about last week, how the pattern was established in the garden and then perished in chapter 3. So before all of that happened, God had already decided on His plan of redemption. God already had in mind and already had planned that He would redeem the people in the way that He has and is redeeming them. So with that... We, we must look through that lens as we look back at the text. Let me point out a couple other things from this text uh, that we just read. He had determined in eternity past that he would call a people to himself through Jesus and to restore everything under Jesus. So Ephesians 1 verse 10, we did not read this, but let's read it together here. As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So we have God's plan to restore all things under Christ. We also know from this passage why God decided to rescue the world. If you look at Ephesians 1 verse 6, he says, to the praise of His glorious grace. This is why. Yes, there are great benefits for us. But this is why. Because he was worthy of the glory. And it's to praise his glory. If you look at verse 12 of chapter 1. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Look at verse 14, just two verses later. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So we see very clearly that this whole plan, this whole Bible overview that we're talking about, this, this redemption plan, we have the fall, or I'm sorry, creation, fall, redemption, consummation, where that will all be completed. 
This is all the kingdom pattern, the kingdom perished, the kingdom promises we're going to talk about today, and so on, the kingdom, the kingdom fulfilled. This is all for the praise of our God's glory. It's not just so that God can have a cute little people to worship Him. It's not just so that God could defeat Satan. It's not just that God has something to do. It's for His glory. Be a display of His glory. Be to praise Him for His glory. So above all else, God was and is concerned with His name. It's not an ego boost, but looking to restore things to the way they should be. God is restoring things to the way they were meant to be. God is meant to be at the center of that universe. As the rightful king and the rightful ruler of this world. So what is best for us is for God to be at the center in that rightful place. And we have to think of that rightful place as both a far place, a far high place, and a very close and near place as well. So rightful king and ruler over the universe. The typically what we see in churches uh, today is we talk a lot about God's rightful rulership in our lives. That's true too. But it's not the whole picture. The whole picture is the rightful ruler and king over the universe. Over this whole world. Over our entire country. Over every person that walks on this earth. And all of creation as well. So God is meant to be the rightful ruler and king of this universe. Here's a, the main proposition for this morning. Kind of the thesis, if you will. It says, all the nations of the world will see the kingdom of God through the Abrahamic covenant as its diverse promises are utterly and completely fulfilled in the person, Jesus Christ. So that's kind of our, what we're aiming, what I think we see in the Abrahamic covenant and in the broader picture that we're going to look at this morning. Let's read that again. All the nations of the world will see the kingdom of God through the Abrahamic covenant as its diverse promises are utterly and completely fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. So the nations, the whole world, will see the redemption of creation taking place before their eyes. And whether or not they realize it, it is a blessing to them. So the redemption of this world, whether or not someone experiences personal redemption, the redemption that happens is still a blessing to them, even though their final destination might be hell. The fact that God has chosen to redeem a people and his creation back to himself is a blessing to all. So the kingdom of God, the future consummation of this kingdom is being partially realized now. And I think that's something that we miss. And God is in the process of restoring this now. It's not just a future thought. And I believe one day we will see drop from the sky 
the final finished kingdom of God. Where He will reign, Christ will reign, and all that He is doing right now will be finished. And we're a part of that now. And I think, just a side comment, to live for other things, and to, to dichotomize our kingdom living from our secular living, or this is my life here, and I do what I want here, and this is what I do for God here, and for this, for God to not consume all of our lives, is very nearsighted. Not seeing God's grand picture. So, we see, coming from Abraham, we'll see the promise of a person that will be the kingdom of God, and from him will come the spreading of this kingdom. So let me review for us real quick what we've talked about the past couple weeks before we jump into a few other things from the text here. So, so far we have seen God's pattern of the kingdom through the creation covenant. So Adam and Eve were created as God's people. They were living in God's place. This is Eden. And they were under God's rule. God had given them a set thing to, to, uh, uh, to be obedient to Him, to not eat from the tree, to... Uh, to subdue the earth, to have dominion over this earth. And in that, and we've not talked about this term a lot, but I want to begin to uh, familiarize you guys with the idea that of Adam being like the, what we would call the mediator of the covenant. He's kind of the, the, the head of that covenant. And, and God works through him to the rest of this earth. So God is the mediator, Adam, sorry, is the mediator, or also might call him the covenant head. The head of that covenant. Adam is to rule over creation under God's great care and provision. So that's what we see as the pattern. Again, don't confuse the pattern of the kingdom with the perfected kingdom. But the pattern of the kingdom, we see that in the garden. Then we see the perished kingdom in Genesis 3. As Adam and Eve decide to exercise what we call moral legislative autonomy... They wanted to decide for themselves what is good. They wanted to make a name for themselves apart from God. And they decide to do this when they eat of the tree. They decide they don't want to live underneath God's rule anymore and therefore not be God's people anymore. They no longer want to be the people of God. They want their own autonomy. I mean, and we see this practically around us all over the place. We want this autonomy. We want to do what we want to do. So what happens is God then acts in judgment. He casts them from the garden. He curses them. And that curse involves relational strife. Man and God. Man and woman. Man and creation. They're spiritually dead. They will then experience physical death. But what is so amazing, what is so amazing, and I hope that you see this, is that even in the midst of their disobedience, in the midst of the destruction, in the midst of the judgment, we are reminded of the graciousness of God. 
we should see, be reminded that God is gracious. And if we don't see that or if we miss that, then we will miss from the very beginning what is the picture painted by the whole. And that is God's covenant of grace, God's grace to the people of this earth. And so the first thing I think we need to see, not specifically from the Abrahamic covenant, but so far in Genesis, is be reminded that God is gracious. So just a quick overview of that. In Genesis 3, we notice the theme of sin and judgment. Right? So we sin, and then judgment happens. There's a third theme that if we're not careful, we'll miss. And that's God's grace. Human sin is met by God's judgment, but it's also met by God's mercy. And see, guys, see from the very beginning here, the picture that's being painted, what is later more clearly, dis- clearly told, and that is God is both just and the justifier. And we see here judgment, sin, judgment, and grace is what we've seen so far. So let's talk about this graciousness, the serpent crusher. I love that one psalm that we sang on Easter, talks about a, a boot to the head. Uh, so uh, theologically rich. So we see the serpent crusher. Adam and Eve are banished from the garden. But it's not all bad news. Right? It's not, it could have been all bad news. It was not. God still, even in the midst of their sin, He clothed their nakedness. I believe foreshadowing, ultimately, the clothing of our guilt and sin by the blood of Jesus Christ. Look at His graciousness and His promise to the serpent. Galatians, or Galatians Genesis 3.15 um, let me go ahead and encourage you right now. Go ahead and flip back to Galatians 3.15. If you want to keep your finger in Ephesians, that might be helpful as well. But go back to Genesis 3. He says in verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So here we have a prophecy of the coming serpent crusher, Jesus Christ. And you say, well, how do we know that? How do we know that he's talking about Jesus in 3.15? We know that because Paul tells us this very clearly in Romans 16, verse 20. He says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Well, Paul informs us that this serpent crusher it's Jesus, and that He will be crushed. Then the second example of the graciousness of God that we see is the mark of Cain. Look at the mark of Cain in Genesis 4, verse 15. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. So Cain kills Abel. Cain is cast out, but God did not abandon Cain, even in his sin. Do we see this? Like, so we talk often about the God of destruction and judgment of the Old Testament, and then the God of graciousness in Jesus Christ in the new. 
I think that comes from just a terrible reading of the Old Testament. What's this? Even in his sin, like if it was the God of judgment and ah, of the Old Testament, it, what's he doing here? He must have missed the cue on that one. But here we have God exercising graciousness that he did not have to exercise. So the mark of Cain. The second is Enoch walked with God in the midst of all this great sin. Genesis 5 verse 24, Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. Isn't that awesome? I mean, think about the context here. The, the refrain of, and then he died, and then he died, and then he died, and then he died. That phrase is missing in verse 24. Enoch walked with God, and then he was not, for God took him. Now, he didn't just make a mistake in writing there. Like, he didn't just miss the refrain. That's on purpose. He was here, he walked with God, and then God took him. And then he died, it's not there. We see the graciousness of God upon a man who did not deserve it. So we were given hope. We see here that even in the fallen world, it is possible to know God and escape the penalty of death. Graciousness. Let's keep going. Enoch walked with God, and the next we see is God's covenant with Noah. God's covenant with Noah, again, if we just categorize God as this judging God that's not enjoyable and gracious in the Old Testament, then we miss some very key things here. God's covenant with Noah, Genesis 6, verse 18. He says, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. Once again, seeing the grace of God. Look at Genesis 6, verse 8. It says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. I think it's arguable that, that, from what I've read, that the word favor there could be better translated as grace. That Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Now, think about this. Think about this. Now, if you, don't have, if you haven't read this recently, the account of Noah, I encourage you to do that. Now the earth at this point is full of sinful people, but out of those sinful people, God chooses Noah to be the recipient of his covenant. This isn't a world full of good people, or it wasn't like sinful people, and then you had Noah, this shining, great, beautiful character like Jesus. He didn't deserve this either, but God chooses Noah out of this, so what happens is Noah has faith and belief in God. I mean, so think about the task that God had called him to do. Has anybody seen the movie Evan Almighty? It's terrible, right? But it p- at least paints the picture of the just horrendous thought or crazy thought of doing what Noah did, right? Like here in the middle of suburbia, Evan Almighty, you know, he is building this ark. And everybody, you're crazy. So think about the faith. And, and, and then think about this too. God is saying, I'm going to destroy the earth. But you guys, I'm going to save. That's crazy. So think about the faith that's exercised here in God. Once again, Noah will be like Adam, the covenant mediator, 
at this point. So through his family, through the family of Noah now, because the rest of the earth will be wiped out, through Noah will come the seed, eventually that will be Jesus. That will be the mediator of the new covenant. So Noah functions as like another Adam at this point in the text. He stands as the new head of the human race. So Noah's family is rescued through this covenant. And we see God's grace and mercy in choosing Noah, followed by faith and belief, followed by a typological salvation. So grace in choosing Noah, Noah exercises faith and belief, and then God saves Noah's family. Do we see the picture that's being painted there for us? God's grace, His faith in God, and then the salvation of His family. God's already painting this beautiful picture. So, now, let me say, for the first time in the text, we see the literal word covenant. But it's interesting, if you trace these two things back together, I encourage you to go back and do this, but look at the parallels between the covenant with Noah and the covenant in creation. Like the Noahic covenant can be considered almost like a, uh, uh, a continuing of the creation covenant. Uh, I think it is very much a continuation of the creation covenant. So the covenant is a reinstatement. So this covenant with Noah is a reinstatement of God's commitment to creation and commitment to us. So let's talk about this. His commitment to care for, preserve, provide for, rule over all that He has made, even in the light of sin, to not let the creation project fall. That's God's commitment. And He renews that here with Noah. The difference, right... The difference between when God makes the covenant with Adam and Eve in the creation covenant and now the Noahic covenant, the promise with, with Noah, is that now creation has fallen. So in this creation, the covenant, in creation, the covenant's made and the sin has not entered the world. Now sin has entered the world and God again makes the same commitment to his creation. I like what Vaughn Roberts says here. He says, this covenant highlights that even in the midst of human sin and depravity, God will not allow creation to be finally lost, and He will ensure that mankind continues to fulfill their roles as God's image bearers. And we see God's commitment to that here. And then God makes another promise to Noah once the waters recede. If you look at Genesis chapter 9, verse 11... He says, I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will be a flood to destroy the earth. So human sin will continue, but God declares his commitment to creation. So through this covenant with man, we see God's grace in that he is not done with this world. Let me remind us, lest we forget, once again the story could have ended there. 
The flood, we see, was an undoing of the created order. It was a destruction of it. But it was followed by a gracious restoration, a new start. I mean, think about it. A new start to his entire creation. So let's quickly look at the parallels between the creation covenant and the covenant with Noah. Genesis 1.28, he says, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Genesis 1.28. Then Genesis 9.1, he says, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Genesis 1.28, so flipping back, he says to subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Back in Genesis 9, verse 2, the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Again, dominion. Look at creation account, Genesis 1, verse 29. And I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with the seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. Genesis 9 verse 3. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you and as I gave you the green plants I give you everything. So, in this story, let me draw one other thing for us. God places the rainbow in the sky as a reminder of, our, of His promise. Here's where we miss the bigger picture. We tend to think of Him placing the rainbow as a reminder of simply and solely that He will not flood the earth again. That promise is so much more than simply God's not going to use rain to destroy this place. Instead, we should remember God's commitment to creation. God's commitment to renew, to save, to redeem. So I hope next time you see a rainbow that it's more than just, oh, good, I don't have to go buy new windshield wipers and floaties uh, ever again. Instead, God has promised to redeem us and restore this creation back to the way it was intended to be. The rainbow means so much more. God's commitment. God didn't have to do that. I know we pound this a lot here, but guys, we fail to see the weight of that because we think in some ways we deserve it. God did not have to do that. He didn't have to step in. And He didn't have to continue it. We should take comfort whenever we see the reminder of his promise in the sky. So Noah, as with Adam, though, will fail miserably. The same thing will happen. By the time we get from this point to Genesis 11, we have Genesis 3 all over again. This is, I mean, granted, a lot of time goes by, but as far as a lot of physical time goes by, but as far as chapters and the accounting of the story, and as far as the, think about the history of the earth, this is a very short period of time. Adam, just, or Noah, just as Adam, will fail miserably. The problem 
And the reason this happens, again, is that the same evil heart remains. The same evil heart remains. Again, I want to quote Von Roberts on this. He says this, What is needed is such heart transformation tied to the forgiveness of our sin, literally being born of God's Spirit, so that the human beings will fulfill the purpose of their creation, namely, obediently living in relation to their covenant Lord and to each other. So what needs to take place is this heart transformation. And we'll see this heart transformation some in the Old Testament and then we see it ultimately in Christ and the work that's done there. So what we've seen so far is a picture of sinful, rebellious human attempts to make a name for themselves. So going to the Tower of Babel, why do they do that or Babel? Why, why do they do that? They, so they can make a name for themselves. So that they could be autonomous of God. And God says, I'll have none of that. But God, this is what we've also seen. Is we've seen a God who has elected and graciously called a man, and as we're getting ready to talk about, Abraham, through whom he will make a name for himself. So through Abraham, God will make a name for himself. He will bring forth a person, and then a people, who will willingly, joyfully submit to his gracious rule. This is what we see and what we will see today. So we've seen the pattern of the kingdom, the perished kingdom, and yet we are reminded and will be reminded here even further of the graciousness of God. As we see God's promised kingdom, I think we'll see it in three different elements that help us see the peace here. So the first thing is see God's promised kingdom in three different elements. Let's, let's remind ourselves here of the main proposition. All the nations of the world will see the kingdom of God through the Abrahamic covenant as its diverse promises are utterly and finally fulfilled in the person Jesus Christ. Now let's go back to the New Testament. If you kept your finger there in Ephesians, let's go back to Ephesians chapter 1 and read that together again. Again, as a reminder that helps set the tone, I think, for this text in Genesis. Verse 3, he said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Let me highlight this right here. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, in love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So this verse is helpful in understanding and seeing the continuity, I believe, between the two covenants, between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, or the Old Testament and the New Testament. The people of God were chosen before the foundation of the world. Okay? For all of history, the people of God were chosen before the foundation of the world. And they will all be saved by grace through faith. 
What we see, though, is in the Old Covenant, or in the Old Testament, this is primarily made up of Israelites, the Jews. In the New Testament, it is made up of all tribes and nations. So the Abrahamic Covenant also, though, plays a crucial role in how we understand these two covenants, how we fit these two covenants together. And I want for us to read, and, and yeah, I want for us to read Galatians 3.16. And make sure you write this passage down. It's a key passage, I think, in helping us understand this. Galatians 3.16, Paul says this, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. So in Christ, we have the promised seed of Abraham, the, the one that will come forth. The mediator of God's people, the one who fulfills all God's promises, not least the Abrahamic promises. So all the promises to Abraham are ultimately and completely fulfilled in Christ, not in the nation of Israel. They are, as Jesus is a Jew, right? But in Christ, as Abraham's physical and spiritual seed, Christ will ultimately fulfill all of these promises. So I believe what we see is Israel. There are real promises made to Israel. There are real things that will happen between God and Israel. But ultimately, we see that relationship as a typological relationship of God and Christ. That doesn't minimize God's relationship with the Israelites. But it is a part of this beautiful picture that God is ultimately showing us that will be displayed in reality in Jesus. All pointing forth to Christ. Paul tells us that it's to the offspring. So the Abrahamic covenant and I know I keep saying the Abrahamic Covenant. When are we going to read the Abrahamic Covenant? We'll read it in just a few moments. We're getting there. Uh, so the covenant with Abraham is a promise, really, of the kingdom of God. Again, we see the kingdom of God promised in a covenant. God's people, who will they be? Abraham's descendants. We'll see this in a moment. Where will be the place of God? The promised land. Canaan. God's rule, and therefore we see God's blessing. This God, in the Abrahamic covenant we'll see, gives a command. And will then give further commands as they proceed. But in the Abrahamic covenant we see even then God giving them a command. And ultimately God promises through Abraham to reverse the effects of the fall. Now think, now think about this. How crazy, once again... For Abraham to believe that this is actually going to take place. I mean, this is a crazy thought. 
I think if anything, it just highlights the faith that was required of Abraham to believe that God would do this such great thing, even amidst the sin of this earth. Because think about this. I mean, it's crazy in its own respect. So Noah, God's going to destroy the whole earth. Like, that's crazy. Well, now, instead of destroying the whole earth and just starting over new with some fresh people, you know, kind of getting rid of all the variables and reducing it down to one or two variables, God says, no, even with all these variables, I'm going to pull from within that a seed, a people, a new kingdom. Genesis 15, verse 6 says, And he, or Abraham, believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as, what? Righteousness. So again, Abraham was not saved by obeying the law, by obeying the covenant. And I think that's where, again, we kind of have a mispicture of, or a misunderstanding of the Old Testament, New Testament. It was not saved by the law in the old and then saved by Jesus in the new. It has always been saved by grace through faith. Always. Abraham here is saved by his faith as God chose him in his grace. So he was accepted of God not on the basis of his own goodness, but by the faith in the promise of God. Again, just to remind us, we don't deserve this. Abraham did not deserve this. Once again, Abraham's free-willed response was just that, a response to God's initiation in his life. God chose him. God acted in grace on him. God could have chosen anyone else. But once once again, God did not choose everyone He did not act upon and enable everyone to receive this grace. He does so with Abraham and then will bless through Abraham the rest of the world. So we don't deserve a place in this family. Our only hope is uh, is only to trust in the gospel. Not in our own doing. Same for us as it was for Abraham. A couple more comments on the Abrahamic covenant We need to notate, I think, its place in the storyline of Scripture. So it's coming after Genesis 1 through 11. So Genesis 1, creation, then we get to the fall, the perish kingdom, and then we get to the Tower of Babel. Babel. Uh, And similar to the Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant stands in contrast to the judgment of God on human sin and presents a new a plan for creation. So instead of judgment and that being final, God has a new plan for creation. Actually, it's the same plan. It just looks a little different. However, unlike Noah, God does not destroy the human race as in the flood. Instead, God allows the nations to exist and then calls Abraham out of the nations. So again, we need to see some of these distinctions. Ultimately, God's intent is to work through the covenant mediator, who's Abraham, and his seed, who is Jesus, to bring blessing to the nations by making him a great nation. I like what N.T. Wright says here. 
He says, Abraham emerges within the structure of Genesis as the answer to the plight of all humankind. The line of disaster and of the curse from Adam through Cain through the flood to Babel begins to be reversed when God calls Abraham and says, In you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So we now begin to see the contrast between two kingdoms. One kingdom is associated with Babel, right? And all that stands in opposition to God. That's one kingdom. The other kingdom is that that's associated with God's saving initiative and sovereign grace. And this kingdom of God's will fulfill the role of Adam. It will bring salvation to the nations. And it will display to the world the kind of relationship that God originally intended for all of humanity. And we have this kingdom here and this kingdom here. We see two kingdoms going on. See, before it was one kingdom, it was perished. And we see Noah, where it's the whole world's destroyed and God starts over. But now we'll begin to see two separate kingdoms that are lived out and continue even to this day. So, it's only through Abraham and his seed that we will once again see God's goal for creation. His goal being the establishment of his kingdom and divine rule over this world through his redeemed human society, also known as the new creation. So when all this is consumed and finished, this will be the ultimate display of God's glory and the establishment of His kingdom. So with that, all of that said, let's go to Genesis chapter 12, and let's read verse 1 through 3. Genesis chapter 12. It says this, Now the Lord said to Ab- Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Keep your finger there. Go to Genesis 17. 17 verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me, uh, I'm sorry, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. And what God does there real quickly, He literally changes His name to that which means a multitude of nations. In verse 6, He says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring 
after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. And here he gives some command. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or, brought with your, or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. Both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male is, who is not circumcised is the flesh. In the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He who has broken my covenant. So, first thought, first element that we see God's promises is, first of all, the people of God will be gathered into one community from every tribe, tongue, and nation. So Abraham's descendants will become a great nation that will be God's own people. Genesis 17, verse 7. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generation for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. We'll see this phrase repeated in the Old Testament often. I will be your God and you will be my people. So, in order to understand, I think, some of this aspects of the Abrahamic covenant, we need to understand the nature of this covenant, right? So let's kind of dive into this. Some of this is, uh, I, I might be a little thick, but I, I hope it's helpful. Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. He says, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, that in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Look again at chapter 17, verse 9. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring, after you throughout their generations. So, and kind of stepping back, because I don't have time to go back and reread all of the text here, but in its historical context, the Abrahamic covenant not only encompasses spiritual elements that link us ultimately to the new covenant, but it also consists of natural or physical and typological elements. Okay, so this is what, I want to give you an example of what I mean by that. So think through this with me. We talk about the seed of Abraham or the descendants of Abraham. First of all, that, the seed of Abraham, first of all refers to a natural, physical seed. So every physical descendant of Abraham. We see this through circumcision. The seed of Abraham also refers to a natural, physical, yet special seed tied to God's elective purposes. We see that in 
Isaac, Jacob, and so on. So this is God and his special or unique seed, this plan. Uh, let me make a comment at this point. This is crucial, I think, for some distinctions today. But at this point, we see God's nation is going to be a mixed people. By that, what we will see, or what I mean we will see, is that there is the entire nation of Israel, which is God's people, but there is those who are believers and those who are unbelievers. All still have circumcision, but not all saved. Those who are believers, those who are unbelievers. So seed of Abraham, natural, physical, natural, physical. Next one, seed of Abraham refers to the true, unique seed, namely Christ. We see that in Galatians 3.16. It refers to that, in a, again, in a typological way. Jesus is the unique seed of Abraham. Let's think about this for a second. Abraham, uh, uh, Jesus, the Bible tells us, comes through the physical line of Abraham. So he is physically the seed of Abraham. But he is also the spiritual seed of Abraham. As he is the, think about this, the, the anti-type of the covenant mediators of the old covenant. So now the types that this has been all displaying all along, the reality of it's here. The picture this has been painting, the reality of it's here in Jesus. Galatians 3.16 says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring who is Christ. So Paul tells us that's what this, pro- this promise is referring to. So then lastly, the seed of Abraham, because what we're talking about here is the multifaceted aspects of the Abrahamic covenant. The seed of Abraham, the New Testament teaches us, is also all believers as the spiritual seed of Abraham. This is key. I don't think we have any ethnic Jews in this room, as I said, I know of. Without this, all of us are in deep doo-doo, right? We're in big trouble. Galatians 3 26 through 29. It says, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now hear what he says. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to the promise. Praise God. That's us. That's us. So, we see that the promise to bless the whole world through the descendants or or the seed of Abraham has many different facets. Physical descendants. Physical yet mixed spiritual group. True unique descendants being Christ or descendant being Christ. And then spiritual descendants being 
us. Um, just a quick, maybe more academic comment. If you're, if you're ever in conversations where you hear the word dispensationalism or covenant theology, dispensationalists will see the Abrahamic covenant as only being physical. The covenant theologians see it as only being spiritual. And what I'm saying is I believe it's just this side of being only spiritual. So there is a recognition of physical aspects. You say, let me, let me wet, maybe I'm going to be a nerd for a second. So Presbyterians practice pedo-baptism. They ascribe to only the spiritual aspects of the Abrahamic covenant. You say, well, what does that mean? What that means is that they believe that they are basically, the, or they are the replacement of Israel. So just like Israel was a mixed group, right? It was a mixed people, believers and unbelievers, who were the people of God by the mark of circumcision, so too the church is a mixed group of people that is marked by baptism, hence the baptism of infants. So when they baptize that infant, they're not, they're not, and this is key, they are not saying that that infant is saved. That's key. Other denominations do. But they're not saying that that baby's saved. They're just saying they're a part of the community. And it's a mixed community. So all that to say, we, don't, we see them as separate. We, and I'm going to get into this in a few seconds. As we, the church, is something brand new and completely separate. Right? It's, it's a fresh new thing. Not simply a replacement of. So that's why we don't practice pedo-baptism. Of course, I also don't see where it's in Scripture, but... Um, but that's where they kind of support that. But the point is, I, and a part of what I want to say this, is like Presbyterians are friends, <laughs> okay? At least the conservative ones. Uh, and and uh, like they're not, just because they baptize babies doesn't mean that they believe that, uh, that they're saved through salvation or that there's, you know, this, it's not that. So I just want to, uh, to give this a couple comments. So if you're ever in a whatever dispensationally, all right, you got it. All right, so back to the text here. The church, I said, is not simply a replacement of Israel. It's, a re- it's not just simply a renewed representation. Rather, the church is new. Um, let's move on. There's a continuity between the covenants. Uh, I believe that being the covenant of grace as seen in the kingdom of God. The covenant of grace exercises God is continually establishing His kingdom and that being a great display of His grace. So God's people have always been saved by grace through faith. So, what we see in the Abrahamic covenant. On this earth, men and women are spread many different directions. All right, we see this at the tower, Right? So they want to make a name for themselves. God says, okay, I'm going to spread you and divide you and send you among the entire earth. I will disrupt your plans. But through Abraham will come a man in whom the promises to Abraham will be fulfilled. Through this man, redemption will take place in some of the people from around the world. And as redemption takes place, 
these people are gathered into one community known as the church, as the people of God, as redemption takes place. So guys, we are literally in the midst of seeing the reversal of the tower judgment. We're literally in the midst of that. And God drawing out a people for himself. So instead of people chasing their own desire, pointing in every which direction, the redeemed have their desires pointing to one place, God, as we proceed toward the kingdom, that we are being gathered into one community. So, the second thing we see, oh, let me say this comment, last comment. We should live with the desire to see the people of God gathered into one community. As this is indicative of the kingdom of God coming upon us. So it will be a day when that kingdom will be complete. And we are seeing it come to completion. This doesn't mean all in one community as in we all live in Dayton, Ohio. Uh, but it means us all a part of the family of God. And we should love and desire to see that. To see the tower judgment being reversed. So first, the people of God. Second, the place or land of God will be established wherever the redemption of Christ has taken place. This begins with Jesus Christ. Begins with Christ. Abraham is commanded to leave his homeland and to go to another land that God will show him. This is the land of Canaan, the promised land. Genesis 17, verse 8, And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, from everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Now, I think, I, I, I believe there's, there's debate on this, but I believe that the land promise at this point is typological. I think it will be fulfilled in the journeys of the Old Testament. God will take them to the land of of Canaan. He will give that land to them. And we clearly see that recounted in Scripture. But again, I see that as being a picture, a type of what will ultimately be fulfilled in Christ. Now what will happen in Christ uh, is that this land will then ultimately be fulfilled in the new creation when Christ comes and reigns from Jerusalem. So Christ, this land thing, uh, is an important aspect, but it shows us ultimately that Christ will reign, and the Bible tells us from Jerusalem that He will reign and this whole earth will be made new and will all be His land, will all be His place, the land of God. So I think... Here, and here's where this kind of affects us. Christ, if this is creation, I'm trying to, and I know this is kind of hard, and just kind of pull some of these pieces together, but if God has created, if God has created everything, and this creation was meant to be His kingdom, as the fall took place, God's kingdom was perished. But God promises through Abraham that this land portion of His kingdom will be restored. Right? So the land promise will be restored. The place of God's kingdom will be restored. But if all of creation is God's, 
then getting back to the pattern of the kingdom must mean the redemption of the entire earth, His creation. So when Jesus comes, think about this with me. When Jesus comes, Jesus is the place of God. So in Jesus is the perfect kingdom. It's the kingdom of God, the place of God. Why? Because it's redeemed, it's perfected. Now I'm not saying Christ was redeemed, like as in he sinned and was redeemed, but it was the perfect place of God, perfect obedience. And then what happens through Christ, as Christ proceeds in life and after his earthly ministry to bring redemption of his people and the surrounding creation, the kingdom of God is being established. So what are we saying? As Christ brings about redemption in all things, the kingdom of God is being restored. So when we think that's why that's why when, when we think of redemption, that's why we have to think of it more than just the redemption of my soul, but the redemption of this earth. See, if Christians, the practical outworkings of that, if Christians realized that or knew that, then maybe they wouldn't work like lazy slobs. Maybe they would work to see their workplace redeemed. Maybe they wouldn't disconnect God from their family. See, the gospel is bringing about redemption not just in my soul, but through my soul to the rest of creation as I am exercising dominion over this earth, over the places of my employment, the, my relationships with the people around me, that I am desiring to see the redemption of all that take place. And when that redemption takes place, I see the kingdom of God become a reality in the places around me. That will one day be fully realized when our king returns to establish it, to complete it, and to subdue everything underneath his feet. So we miss this practically as Christians as we, we just want to see the kingdom of God kind of become this little cool thing, this little ticket to heaven inside of me, and then I'm good to go. It's so much more than that. Like the idea of a, a lazy Christian worker should just not be the case. Among many other things. It shows a nearsightedness and a very weak and simple view of the gospel. That's what it shows. So we were seeing creation restored back to its original content or its original intent. So here's my question. Like, do you desire to see the kingdom of God become a reality around you? Do you desire to see that in your family, in the way you treat your wife, in the way you parent your kids, in the way you plan for the future, in the way you maintain your household and keep your cars clean? Like, do you desire to see the kingdom of God? That's sorry, that's no joke. Is your car subduing you or are you subduing it? That's my question. Are you exercising dominion? <laughs> Rusty lives in his car, I think. <laughs> All right, mine's a little messy too. But I have kids, so that's my excuse. I'm just kidding. So, are, like, seriously, guys, do we desire to see that? That God's rightful rulership, that these rightful relationships would take place? 
We need to live with the desire to see the kingdom of God become a reality wherever we go. To see the land around us become the place of God. And that's just indicative and just displaying that which will be in full reality in the future. Last point. The blessing of God will be experienced by those living under the rightful rule of God as the people of God in the place of God. So Abraham's descendants will be blessed, and through them all peoples of the earth will be blessed. So the curse of the fall will be replaced by the blessing of salvation. The curse of the fall will be replaced by the blessing of salvation. It encompassed all the nations. We see that? So God will work through the Israelites. They will be His people. But the goal, the plan is that they will bless all of the nations. So bless them in the sense that the redemption that takes place through the people of God, that will be a blessing, but then also the ultimate blessing and that salvation will extend freely and fastly to all the nations. So Genesis 17 verse 5. He says, No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. So we see Abram, which means exalted father, Abraham, which means father of a multitude. And God goes on to say that there will be a blessing to all. So God appears to Abraham and promises to reverse the effects of the judgment after the tower. He declares his intention to bring back the scattered people of the world and to bless them. To bless them. Again, where do we get this? The God of judgment and wrath of the Old Testament. Here, his plan is to bless the nations. His words to Abraham are the first clear statement of God's promise of the gospel. And this will dominate the rest of the Bible. I like what John Stott says of this text, in the, of the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis, in that 12, verse 1 through 3, he says this, It may truly be said without exaggeration that not only the rest of the Old Testament, but the whole of the New Testament are an outworking of these promises of God. Von Roberts says, Genesis 12, verse 1 through 3, is the text the rest of the Bible expounds. Those are good words. Let's read again Genesis 12, verse 1 through 3. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and, and who, him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So as the people live as God's people, their blessing shall be experienced then, and also will the rest of the earth be blessed. Let's talk about the gospel here for just a moment. The world was meant to thrive under the rightful rule of God, right? I mean, we practically see that when we live obedient lives from God, it doesn't always end up in success as we might define it today, but it always ends up in joy and blessing. It may not be our definition of blessing. But as the world seeks its own rule or it experiences judgment, pain, negative consequences, disaster, 
But as the world is brought under the rightful rule of God, it experiences the way life was supposed to be. A life not morally autonomous from God. A life that was submissive to God. So as we bring, think about this people, as we bring the gospel to the world and the world is redeemed, the blessing of God is experienced. In very real practical and yet in very real spiritual ways as well. The world is redeemed. So what we've seen so far is the Abrahamic covenant, that there will be a day when the people of God will be gathered into one community. The place of God will fill this earth in the new creation, and the rule of God will be joyfully and willfully enjoyed. Let's go back to Paul. We're almost done. Ephesians 1, verse 3-6. through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. So from Adam to Noah to Abraham, all the way through Jesus, we see that God's plan is to have a people. It's to have a people. It was to have those whom he predestined for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. To have a people. This people that would submit to him willfully. That would enjoy his place and his blessing. So let's live to see the people of God gathered. Right? Let's live to see the place of God Fill the earth around us. Let's live to see the rule of God joyfully and willfully enjoyed. And all this is possible because all the nations of the world will see the kingdom of God through the Abrahamic covenant as its diverse promises are utterly and completely fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. His work makes possible and is the fulfillment of this. It's what makes possible the reality of God's kingdom as we are seeing it today and we'll finally see it at the consummation. So, let me encourage you to live, see the people of God, live to see the place of God, live to see the rule of God willfully and joyfully enjoyed. So, let's pray and we'll continue in worship um, Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this time and thank you for your word. Father, I pray that uh, it's your word and the truth of your word is, would, um, would benefit your people. That we would desire to see your kingdom become a reality here. That we would desire to see your people become more numerous and that we would desire to see the lives of those around us and ourselves willfully and joyfully submit to your rule. And Father, we know that it's through your covenant with Abraham that one day will come a seed or an offspring that whose name will be Jesus. And that all those 
who have had faith in you will be saved through the blood work of Jesus Christ. Father, bless this time as we worship you in response to your word. Father, I pray that you would have your way in our hearts, and it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Would you all stand?